Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview. Or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. So maybe Jesus' first miracle would be to heal somebody. Maybe it would be to to take a blind person and let them see or a cripple and help them walk. When we think of things that Jesus healed a lot of people from, we think of lepers. You know, lepers were, were uh, people that had leprosy in, in the, around the first century. And, and man, it just seems like when I think of Jesus healing people, I think of the lepers right away for some reason. But Jesus' first miracle in John chapter 2 is to turn water into wine. And this is a moment that's surprising, especially, I mean, those of you who are Bible scholars, I know that when I say Jesus' first miracle, you're like, yep, the wedding at Cana, water into wine, no surprises there, I know it. But imagine that you're not so familiar with the story, and you're just going off of your expectations based on who God is, who you know him to be, and this miracle, this This water into wine thing really is a surprising moment, which means it's a moment for us to learn something. We're going to begin reading in John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, now John's narrative has been moving forward from uh, Jesus' baptism. And so in chapter 1, we had the setup, word made flesh, and then talked about John the Baptist coming as a witness, and this is what John saw, and then the next day he's calling disciples, and and then on the third day... Uh, A wedding took place at Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, they're at a wedding, the wine is running out, and Jesus' mother comes to Jesus and says, they have no more wine. My first thought is, why is she telling Jesus this problem? Was Jesus a winemaker? I mean, from what we know, he was a carpenter. At least tradition tells us that. And his father was a carpenter. And so we have reason to believe that he was, you know, good at building stuff. People that are good at building stuff, is that the first person you turn to when there's a wine shortage at a party? Of course, if we remember, this is Mary. This is Jesus' mother. This is the the person. At this point, the one person who has been present in Jesus' life from the very beginning all the way until now. She's, She's pretty familiar with her son. She knows him pretty well. And for some reason, when there's a shortage on wine, she comes to him and tells him, like, Jesus, you're the one who can solve my problem here. Scripture doesn't detail it, but, but we know that it, at this point in Jesus' life, he's about 30. So there's 30 years. There's a lifetime worth of experiences and interactions between Mary and Jesus. And through those interactions, Mary has come to a place where she knows what he's capable of, and he seems to be the one that she turns to when there's something needed. It made me wonder, like, has Jesus done this before? You know, was this like... I know last year we were at the, sa- the Passover and there wasn't enough wine and Jesus turned the water into wine. Or Why did she come to him with this problem? Jesus says to her, 
Woman, why do you involve me? I'm sure that he, he said woman with all the tenderness that any son would have when speaking respectfully to their mother. Um, he replies, my hour has not yet come. We see this, uh, this resistance to doing miracles or this desire to sort of hush his ministry. Uh, we see this happening a lot in Jesus's early ministry. Um, you know, this idea that he would, even later on, he'll do a miracle and he'll tell someone, well, don't, don't tell anyone, you know, who did it. Uh, don't let anyone know. Or if the crowds start to get too big, he's like, I gotta, we got to go somewhere else where the crowds aren't so big. we got to escape from these crowds. we got to keep things under the radar. So especially early in his, early in his ministry, he's, he's flying under the radar, which is not how we tend to do things. I mean, when we're starting something or we're trying to, get something going, we tend to be promoters of that, right? We might take out ads on Facebook or, or mail things to people's houses. I, I cannot believe, I mean, almost everything that comes to my house is junk mail. I just feel so poorly for all the male men and women driving around because, to, to, you know, you imagine the moral dilemma of you've got trucks full of junk mail that you're just delivering to people. And you're thinking to yourself, like, oh, I can't believe I have to do this. And then people go, they see the mailman's come, and they're all excited. They run out to the mailbox, and then they open it up, and it's just junk mail. Anyhow, when we're starting things, we decide to send people junk mail. We spam them with ads. We, we tell it, go tell all your friends. Tell all your friends. Church at the beach next week. Tell everyone. Everyone should be there. That wasn't Jesus' M.O. He intentionally would would fly under the radar. And, and I think part of the reason he, is, he did that is, is this whole idea of he's got a mission in mind. His, he knows the cross is coming, and he's determined to get there. And I think in some ways Jesus is trying to fly under the radar because he doesn't want any kind of popularity or any kind of mass following to suddenly make the cross impossible. The idea that people would turn on him and, and turn him over to the Romans and be crucified. Uh, if, they, if they really saw, every, you know, if he just went out and, you know, put God on full display, uh, that might have never happened. But whatever the reasons are, I don't know. He's initially resistant. Verse 5, though, his mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So I love it. They have this interaction where Jesus is like, I think I'm still flying under the radar. My hour hasn't come. I'm not ready to do this. And his mother's saying, well, you got to do something. And, and that's how it's left. And then as, as they separate, as Mary goes on, she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. She knows. She knows that he's going to do what she said to do. And this is one of the cool things about this story, because although Jesus isn't like me in that he, he doesn't go around promoting himself and, and promoting things, He's also, at least in this moment, as, as a, a, a male who's related to significant females throughout my life, in this moment, he's just like me. He's had this moment of, of contention with his, his mother, and she says, you should do this, and he's thinking I should do that, and then as they part ways, he's resigned to, I'm going to do what she said. I mean, this is me when I'm growing up, conversations with my mother, anyone who's married, this is me with my wife, right? Like, I'm really sure, honey, that this is what we should do. Well, I think this is what we should do. And then we leave, and I'm like, ah, oh, she's right. She's right. 
I'm going to do what she says. Jesus is really focused on the cross. He's focused on everything being set up perfectly for that. And then it's like Mary invades his thoughts for a moment and says, what about these people? What about this wedding? What about this? I mean, it must have just been culturally unacceptable to run out of wine at a wedding. And I've heard scholars talk about how this was a really big deal because, you know, it seems like we got to justify the Messiah turning the water into wine somehow, right? So it's cultural. He, it's, it's a big deal. These, the people hosting this wedding egg all over their face if they run out. So Jesus is moved, and his mother is, is moving him with compassion. I know the mission. I know the, the, that your whole thing is important, Jesus. But what about these people here? Can't you see that they need your help? She says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. She's confident that her interference with Jesus is going to cause him to do things a little bit differently. This is where it's important to remember that the Gospel of John is connected to the larger narrative of Scripture because this is a wonderful reflection of this thing we see throughout the Bible where people, humans, interact with God and have some kind of influence on the outcome of all that. There's this portrait in Scripture of a divine being, of a a divine creator who's above all, but who listens to his creation, particularly the people who are made in his image. One place in Scripture that comes to mind is the story of Abraham. You can turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18. Uh, This is a story of Abraham, and God has shown up. Three men have shown up. uh, Abraham has been hanging out. Uh, I think it was by the Oaks of Mamre, and three men show up, and one of them is the Lord, and the other two seem to be some kind of angelic beings. They have some some talk, the God's coming to renew and and remind Abraham of his promise that he and Sarah are going to have a child, and then the two men go on, and Abraham is hanging out there with the Lord, the one guy who's left over who is the Lord, Um, and... And uh, when the men got up to leave, the Lord says, uh, presumably out loud for Abraham to hear, he says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? It's like God's having a bit of a conversation, uh, maybe with himself, maybe Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are interacting here. The eternal word of God is interacting with this form of God that Abraham sees and the Holy Spirit's there. Um, And God's like, should I share with Abraham what I'm going to do? And then evidently he decides yes, because this conversation between Abraham and God proceeds where God tells Abraham, look, there is an outcry against these wicked cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, and so I'm, I'm heading over there to see if, in fact, this place is as bad as it's said it is. I don't know how God didn't just know, because he knows everything, but anyhow, this is the story. I'm just, it's just what the Bible says. Um, he says, and if it's as bad, I'm going to destroy the cities. And so Abraham begins to have a conversation with God. He's like, okay, that sounds good. I mean, you're God. He says, well, Lord, what if you go there and you find 50 righteous people? If there are 50 righteous people, are, are, is the judge of all the universe going to destroy the good people with the evil people? Maybe for 50 people you would change your mind. And God says, all right, Abraham, if I find 50 people, I'll, 
I'll change, I won't, I won't bring destruction on the city. And the conversation progresses where Abraham uh, negotiates God down from 50 all the way down to 10. The last thing he says, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 could be found? And then God says, all right, for the sake of 10 people, I will not destroy it. So there's this thing where God has said in his mind, I'm going to do this. It's going to come out this way. And then he has an interaction with humanity where humanity says, God, why don't you, what about these people? What about the people who might be righteous? Lord, would you be merciful to them? And some kind of change happened there. There's another story of God with Moses. Uh, This is from Exodus 32. Uh, Moses has been on the mountain. He's been talking with God. Uh, He's received the Ten Commandments. Um, And he's sitting up on the mountain, and the the Lord comes to him and says, Look, the people down there, the people have been waiting for Moses, and they've lost hope that he's coming back. And so they ask Aaron, Moses' brother, to take all of their gold and to make them an idol that they can worship. They're feeling untethered. They're feeling lost. They feel like, we don't, we don't have a connection to God. We need some kind of connection to God. How have we seen people to connect to God before? They make these idols. They make these graven images. And they worship those things. And so, you know what we really need? We don't know what's going on up at the mountain. We need our connection to God rooted in the reality of some kind of image. And so, Aaron, can you make us an idol? So Aaron makes him a golden calf. Of course, the Lord knows what's happening. And so he comes to Moses and he says this. Moses and God are on the mountain. The people are down in the valley engaged in idol worship. He says, I have seen these people. They're a stiff-necked people. Now, Moses, leave me alone so that my, in my anger I can burn against them and I will destroy them and then I will make you, Moses, a great nation. God's coming to Moses. He's saying, look, they're engaged in idol worship. You know what? Leave me alone for a moment. I'm going to go and destroy these people. Moses tries to to negotiate with the Lord. He says, Lord, why are you so angry with your people? You you brought them out. Don't, Don't go down and destroy them. Everyone around us is going to say, look, this God just brought his people out of Egypt so he could destroy them. Moses starts to Uh, intercede on behalf of the people. God, be merciful to them. Be patient to them. Don't just just judge them harshly. Remember, these these are Abraham's children. Remember your promises to Abraham. Remember what you said. These are the people you said you were going to do it through. Verse 14 ends this interaction saying, Then the Lord relented, or the Lord changed his mind, and he did not bring on his people the disaster that he had threatened. What are we supposed to do with moments like this? This really kind of messes with our understanding of God, messes with our understanding of authority and hierarchy and and, uh, messes with our understanding of how can it be that God is above everything and yet we see influence coming from those who are definitely under him. Are they moments that we just dismiss? We just pretend they don't exist? Are they moments that we explain away by just, just assuring people that they don't really understand you know, the physics of time and space and, 
and who God is. And I, I think that is, I mean, one, one helpful way of thinking about this is God, God's existence transcends all the dimensions that we live inside of, right? And so we as human beings are, are inside. We live our lives under time and space. I can't be in more than one place at a time. Uh, I, I can't I can't fast forward or rewind time. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm subject to all of that. And we really believe that God is above those things. And so some of this just might be the mystery of what that is and how we try to understand it uh, within the confines of that. So what do we do with moments like this? I, I really love these moments because they, they testify to me that the God who's revealed in Scripture isn't just some invention of the human brain. I mean, how could the human brain ever conceptualize something that was outside the dimensions that we live in? This is where I think we can have a lot of confidence that there's something out there that's bigger than everything around us reaching down to us, trying to reveal himself to us. Because some of these things are just a little bit beyond our comprehension. The other takeaway that I, that I get from this is that God is so committed to partnering with us that somehow in these invitations to interact with him and these invitations to help co-author the story, God is, has privileged humanity with something that he's given you know, to no one else. We alone are made in his image and then we alone are invited into these kinds of interactions with him. We see it in scripture with God interacting with these great leaders, and, and we probably experience it in our lives as well. I don't know if you've ever had the feeling that, uh, that decisions were sort of yours to make. I mean, I know that we talk about serving God, and we just want to do what He wants, but, but it's pretty amazing that somehow we accomplish that by exercising our own free will. The idea that we're just puppets on a string is not an accurate depiction of how God interacts with humanity. We have autonomy. We have the ability to, to partner with or the ability to rebel against. I think part of that is because God is after relationship. Part of the reason that there's a bit of a blurry line between who's in charge and who's following orders or, you know, whatever that might be, is because God is looking for authentic and real relationship with us. And this can be a bit of a mystery at times. But you probably know this. When you're close, when you have rich relationship with someone, the whole idea of who's in charge really takes a back seat to who, who's in love, right? The whole idea of well, I get to make the decision and you just have to follow orders. When there's rich relationship, those dynamics might still be there to some degree, but it really takes a second place to what's right for us, what's right for you. How, you know, it's, it's more of a back and forth uh, discussion. Somehow, Mary's insistence on what Jesus do changes the story of what Jesus does. And I don't know, maybe there's another universe out there where Mary doesn't do what she did and Jesus never turns the water into wine. I don't know. But in this story, in this universe that we live in, this is how it happened. 
And I don't know exactly what that says about God. I mean, we know God is God. We know God's in charge. We know that he knows what he's doing. But we know also that he somehow invited us to pick up the pen and write on the pages of the story as well. He did that with people like Abraham and Moses, and he did it with people like Mary. And I'm okay with not totally understanding it. I don't think we have to understand it to pick up that pen and write. It's there in Scripture. It's a bit of a mystery, but what an amazing and beautiful thing. So, the story progresses. It says, Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind that are used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And so they filled them. And then he told them, Draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. The master of the banquet uh, tasted the water that had been turned into wine, but he didn't know where the wine had come from. Although the servants who had drawn the water knew, obviously, because they did it. Then he calls the bridegroom aside, and he says to the bridegroom, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. If you're familiar with the story, I think in some ways this is supposed to be one of the takeaway points, right? It's a miracle. Jesus made not just wine, but the best wine the master of the ceremonies had ever tasted. God loves his people. He loves to lavish upon us wonderful surprises, the best of the best. But as I was reading those last few few lines this week, I had another epiphany, and, and if you've already figured this out or already noticed this, I'm sorry, the rest of the sermon might be a little bit boring. But who was it who filled the jars? The servants. Who was it who drew the wine out of the jars? The servants. Who was it who took the wine to the master of the ceremony and gave him the best wine ever? It was the servants. And so we know Jesus' first miracle was turning the water into wine. But Jesus never actually touched the wine. Jesus, Jesus just told the servants what to do, and they did it. And so it's like we're seeing a moment again in the story where God is inviting his creation to come and help write the story. What was Mary's last words to the servants? Do whatever he says. Obey him. Have we seen this story in scripture before? That God invites his people into obedience and then accomplishes miraculous and incredible things when his people obey him. Remember, this is all a connected story. It's the same story over and over and over again. God inviting his people to walk with him in obedience and God doing incredible miraculous things that cannot be explained as people engage in simple and humble obedience. You imagine the servants. Mary's just left. Do whatever he tells you. And they're sitting there. They're ready to serve. They're servants. I mean, for one, if it was Jesus' disciples at this point, they'd never seen miracles before, they might have not even done what he told them. Jesus is like, fill those jars with water. What was it? Six jars, 20 to 30 gallons. That's a lot of water. And it's not like they had a kitchen faucet they could just turn on. There was some labor happening here. 
Somebody had to go somewhere to get clean water and carry, you know, a few hundred gallons of water back. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of weight. But Jesus says, fill the jars. So the servants fill the jars, and they get the jars full, and they're covered in sweat, and there's dust and flies everywhere probably because it's the Middle East. And then Jesus is like, all right, draw some of that water out and take it to the master of the ceremonies. And, and you're a servant. You're vulnerable in this moment. And you're like, okay, it was more convenient to get the water from the, the, the spring that was over here that we usually use to fill the horses' troughs. So one of the guys went there because it was shorter, and so this water is not even really clean. And now i got to take it to the master of the ceremonies and give it to him. I'm not doing that, Jesus. I'm not doing that. You're just setting me up for a beating. But he's a servant. Mary said to do whatever, he, whatever this guy tells you. So he fills up the cup. He's taking it to the master of the feast. I don't know. Maybe he looked in it and it was wine then. Maybe the master of the feast, maybe it turned into wine in the master of the feast's mouth. Like, I have no idea. But he's taking it and he gives it to him. And it's like, oh man, I really hope this works out. And that's something, that feeling of, oh man, I really hope this works out. That is something that people of faith and people who have followed Jesus have felt time and time and time again. And it doesn't matter how many times God comes through. It doesn't matter how great the wine is or what the last miracle was. I don't know. I find myself each time trembling in fear. Oh, man, I really hope this works out. And yet it does. God is faithful. We know the power came from Jesus turning that water into wine. But every action, every step of obedience was on the servants. They don't even get names. And yet, Jesus performed his first miracle through their obedience. It's the same story again. This part of the story ends in verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana... Oops, wrong one. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed him. I think one of the reasons the Apostle John adds that, uh, that line and his disciples believed him because it's setting us up for the next parts of the story where these men are walking with Jesus, believing in who he is, and taking constant steps of obedience and witnessing the miraculous things that can happen when humanity steps in, takes the pen that God gives them, and writes the words that the Spirit of God is writing on their hearts into the world around them. The servants obey. They get to write part of the story in their, through their obedience. And the, the disciples believe in Jesus, and so they obey and they begin to write, some of them literally writing. Thanks for the Gospels, guys. They begin to write. And then that invitation to walk with God, to partner with Him, to pick up your pen and, and write, that invitation is passed on to God's people through the invitation of the Holy Spirit, generation to generation to generation. And it comes to us today. God's giving you an invitation. Will you be a part of this story? 
Do you believe in who Jesus is and are you willing to obey the things that he's calling you to do? This is the part where I can tend to struggle because um, I imagine to some degree there's hearts out there that are like, yes, I believe in Jesus. Yes, I want to obey. What do I do next? And I, I, don't, I don't know. What's he saying, right? <laughs> You've got to be listening. There's a reason that Mary says to them, do whatever he tells you, and then she steps out of the story. And I think sometimes we get into trouble when we as believers or pastors or, or leaders over others are like, this is what God's telling you to do. Go and do this. And there may be times that God gives us revelation and we're able to speak almost prophetically into each other's lives in that way. But I'm telling you, you have to learn to hear his voice. You have to spend time with Jesus. You have to allow the desire to connect with God to be more important than your routines, than your hobbies, than your appetites, and whatever it is. Because if you cannot hear what he tells you, you'll never be able to obey him in the things that he's calling you to obey him. And as human beings, you know, we have a lot of authority in this world. We have pens and and we can write all kinds of things. But if you want to write things that really matter, if you want to write into the narrative of your life the, the miracles of God, the miraculous revelation of God to the world around you, then you have to be writing his words. You have to be in line with his will. And we don't get there apart from walking with him. The people in Exodus were struggling because God and Moses went up on the mountain. They couldn't see God. They didn't know what was happening. They were feeling separated from him. And, and maybe for some of us, we've felt that to some degree in our own lives. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know, God, where are you? One of the commandments that God gave to the people of Israel, uh, one of the Ten Commandments, and they didn't have it yet, so we'll give them a little bit of a pass for the golden calf, but... One of the commandments that Moses came down the mountain with was to not make any kind of graven image, to not form for themselves any kind of idols or any kind of thing that they would look at and be like, that is God. And one of the understandings that the New Testament authors had was that that a a reason that we were uh, commanded to not make idols was because we had been created in the image of God. There's supposed to be this thing that happens where we would look at the people of God and we would see God. We would feel connected to God. This is one of the reasons that like a, ga- a weekly gathering, a church gathering has been a part of church tradition for, you know, for a really, really, really long time. And nobody questioned whether or not it was essential until more, much more recent times. But the idea is we come together as the people of God and our connection to God, our understanding of God is enriched by the opportunity we have to see God in the presence of his people or to see God's presence inhabiting his people. And so we need to be finding ways to connect to Jesus, but I really don't believe that that's totally and completely a solitary journey on your own. I think that this is something that we move toward as a community and that we move toward together.